Welcome back to the holiday edition of A Movie and an Argument with Alyssa and Swin. I'm Alyssa Rosenberg, the critic at Think Progress and a columnist at Slate. And I'm joined, as I am every week, by... Aswin Subsang, but please call me Swin. I'm the Interactive Writing Fellow at Mother Jones Magazine's DC Bureau, and I'm also their movie guy. Alyssa, thank you so much for joining us again. Lovely to be here, as always, particularly when we have two sort of juicy films to discuss. Um, mm-hmm. The first is Judd Apatow's This Is 40, his follow-up to Knocked Up, which focuses on Pete and Debbie, the couple played by um, Paul Rudd and Leslie Mann, who were sort of the um, the supporting characters in Knocked Up. And this time we are looking at uh, their marriage on the week when both of them hit 40. And I think I did not like this movie very much, um, and I think you enjoyed it more than I did. I enjoyed it quite a bit, actually. I think this is the biggest like chasm of difference we have between us in, in a movie that I've seen in a while. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I mean, a little inside scoop for your listeners. I, I think you, you seemed like you were really not liking the movie when we were at the screening. Like It was like almost physically hurting you at times. Yeah, um, and the, I should caveat that I went to see the movie with my boyfriend, and... Um, this is 40 is not a good movie to go see if you're a person in your late 20s and you're in a, and like with someone that you are in a serious relationship with because it will make you want to go be it like some sort of monk, you know, off brewing herbaceous liqueurs or something like that uh, rather than getting married and having children. Um, well, I love so I love Knocked Up. Um mm-hmm. And the scene in that movie where Debbie becomes convinced that Pete is cheating on her and tracks him down and finds him at his fantasy baseball draft. And they end up having this conversation about how he snuck off to see Spider-Man without her. (laughs) And, you know, she sort of crying, says, I like Spider-Man, too. And, they, you know, they sort of resolve to spend more time together. Um, I thought that was a really sort of wonderful negotiation of a marriage scene. Um, and it really sort of endeared me, endeared those characters to me. And thinking about this more, I think part of the problem with This is 40 is structural, right? Because it's supposed to take place over a period of a week um, in which the characters, prompted by Debbie's birthday, which happens first, decide to make a bunch of changes in their lives, um, find that trying to sort of be the perfect family is making them miserable, relax and start working their way out of some substantial problems together. I think the problem with that structure is that the problems which are quite big, um, you know, there are some medical issues. They turn out to have big financial issues Mm -hmm. with both their house and with Pete's business. Um, They're not really given enough space to develop. If, If it had been over a course of a month where both these issues arose and they tried to make major changes um, and, you know, dealt with, both of their very difficult fathers there would have been more of a build but as it is this stuff seems extremely rushed it's sort of this you know kind of jumble of improvisational scenes that are supposed to take place over a week but don't really feel like they could possibly have Mm -hmm. and the third act in which you know they're sort of restored to each other and work their stuff out is extremely short and i did not at the end of the movie believe that they were going to be okay and maybe I'm not supposed to believe that they're okay, but the movie really seems... I thought the movie wanted me to believe that this couple, which is struggling maritally, would be okay at the end of the movie, and I didn't buy it for a minute. Right. I mean, Apatow, he did this with Knocked Up, which this movie is, I guess, it's been labeled as the semi-quasi kind of sort of sequel to. Right. Like, it ends... I think it ends on a even brighter note than this one, but 
Knocked Up does end with things unresolved. But like, it does he have... Do- it, but it does have a much longer arc, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so Ben and Allison break up. He goes to his father. You see him getting a job. De- like, they're, you know, decorating his apartment. Right. Um, he's with her through the birth and has that wonderful moment with her um, obstetrician where he sort of, like, helps create the environment that she needs. Um, you know, the, the birth scene is, I think, longer than the entire third act. Maybe. In, uh, in This is 40. And so I really felt like I saw Ben, you know, kind of confront some of the things that were a problem, showed that he sort of understood Allison's needs really well in a moment of crisis. And so even though they weren't married in the last sequence or whatever, and, you know, Apatow makes fairly traditional comedies. They're about marriage, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it did seem like the characters had reconciled enough that they could try starting a life together for real. Right. I mean... And again, uh, Judd Apatow's last movie, Funny People, with Adam Sandler and Seth Rogen, he, and also Leslie Mann, who plays uh, the female lead in This Is Forty. He he did he did this too in Funny People. He I think he Apatow genuinely does see an emotional depth to leaving things unresolved at the end of a movie. Sure, he, which I guess it's one thing to leave things unresolved, but I feel like you have to leave the audience. With some level of confidence about the outcome, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's one of the reasons that the debate over whether Tony Soprano was killed at the end of The Sopranos is so sort of irritating um, to its creator is because he thought it was very clear sort of what happens to Tony and that Tony lives. Um, and the fact that it wasn't clear to a lot of people has been sort of an ongoing, almost evidence of, you know, a flaw in the, in the finale of the show. Right. Um, and I just thought, I mean... This is 40 read to me like a bunch of very improvised scenes, some of which... Well, which is a lot of them were. (laughs) Of course. And some of them are really brilliant. Some of them are hilarious. A sequence where Pete and Debbie go on vacation and get apocalyptically stoned and order everything from room (laughs) room service. And Leslie Mann pretends to be a giant rat in a hotel bathroom. Like, literally thinking about that scene... Then I, after the screaming, the screening in bed, I had like a giggle fit so hard that my boyfriend thought there was something wrong with me. Um, <laughs> but a lot of the movie <coughs> felt like not very good improv to me, right? I mean, it's a so it's a movie that's invested in making everyone around Pete and Debbie seem like really terrible people, mm-hmm. like really stupid, um, sort of venal. You know, Megan Fox's character plays a shop girl in Debbie's store who turns out to be working as an escort on the side, who keeps sort of casually upping the number of time, like dates she goes on with men for pay a year. And how many, like, sexual things she can do right. with, and it's like, uh, and it's with not, Leslie Mann. Right, and mostly it just seems like she's supposed to be a dumb slut, right? Like, the, a lot of the intentions of the mm-hmm. movie seemed very sour to me. I think that's one of the reasons I didn't like it very much. I mean, like the part when Leslie Mann is um, fiddling with Megan Fox's almost bare breasts in yeah. the middle of the store. I mean, it's um, – I'm not sure if I was put off in the same way you were, but I, it was very clear that a man writing and directing this film enjoyed shooting that. Right. <laughs> I mean, let's get real for him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, truth. Um And I just thought, you know, it's a very, there's this scene where Leslie Mann's character, you know, sort of cusses out this boy who she thinks has been giving her daughter a hard time at school. And it's like really disproportionate and cruel and ugly. And the movie lets her get away with it. 
like there's a scene where she gets called into the she and Pete get called into their principal's office um and are confronted by the mother of this kid Melissa McCarthy and the two of them just straight up lie they act like sociopaths together and they're like gorgeous and charming and sort of perfect California couples Mm -hmm. and she's you know heavier she's a little dowdy um and they sort of drive her insane and like get her to lose her temper and get away with it I just I thought they're the core couple are terrible people like they're really nasty unpleasant people you know they're selfish they're myopic they're sort of childish they're impractical well yeah i'll talk a little bit more about this in a second but like the acute immaturity that make that is the relationship between the two leads and who they are individually i actually liked a lot and i also really liked leslie mann's performance in it, which is why i think I loved watching her tear into this little kid and while wow, you hated it. I just thought it was a great – I thought the comic timing was perfect. I guess <laughs> and so, it, just, the it, overreaction was the point of the scene. It's like, it just – I mean, I understand that, but it felt like a movie with very few consequences for these people. Um, and, you know, it's very much a sort of comedy of privilege, right? I mean, these are people who drive BMWs and live in a, you know, gorgeous house and – can sort of afford to make stupid or careless decisions about their businesses. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the end of the movie, everything's going to be fine. Well, but that's the thing. At the end of the movie, you don't know if everything's going to be fine. Like the I thought the implication was pretty strong that everything was going to be fine. Well, as you said, because it doesn't... It's like not a month in a life. It's yeah. just a week in a life. The financial problems are still looming large and lingering. The emotional problems are certainly there because, as was hinted at in Knocked Up and is almost explicitly stated in This is 40, they simply would not be together if she hadn't gotten pregnant years ago. Like yeah. they, they wouldn't be a married couple. And as much as they, I think they genuinely do love each other in this movie, and even though this is a comedy, I, one of the reasons I liked it was because there was a lot of hard drama in it that really did affect me that had to do with their relationship in the sense that there is this underlying suppressed misery that finds its way even in the scenes when they're perfectly happy together like when they're celebrating like pot browning out of their minds there there is that like well that's the moment when they seem to like each other most and they're stoned out of each other's out of their minds yeah but it only seems like a break yeah from like the mostly daily toil of having to love someone that you're not you probably don't like Right. And I guess it's interesting that you bring up sort of the fact that Pete and Debbie wouldn't be a couple if she hadn't gotten pregnant. Because this sort of abortion doesn't exist streak of Judd Apatow's movies is really strange. And I actually thought this was a case where at least discussing abortion would have made the movie sort of darker in a way that made it hit more. Because Mm -hmm. when Debbie finds out that she's pregnant again, like, she's miserable. You know, she's clearly so profoundly unhappy about the news. And it makes sense, right? She's just found out that her husband is lying to her about their money problems. You know, her daughters feel out of control to her. You know, she has an employee stealing from her at the store. You know, $12,000 I mean, worth. Right. I mean, they're just these huge problems. And yet, and I thought it was really interesting in the scene where her pregnancy is revealed to Pete at this moment when they really loathe each other and are furious. That she, because these are people who are quite cruel to each other in the movie, that she doesn't threaten to abort the baby. Or that, like, in her private self, she doesn't sort of debate or consider it. And I thought that was a real 
you know, in Knocked Up, if you have an abortion, you don't have a movie. In this case, if Debbie had an abortion, it would have been like a really dark, cruel thing that they would have done to each other that actually would have given the story sort of more momentum and weight. Uh, and I think his sort of unwillingness to deal with this is actually something of a liability. Yeah, I, I think it's his unwillingness to go into the genuinely dark. I mean, I'm trying to think about what, yeah. what's the darkest Judd Apatow-related thing I've ever seen. It's like, people are assholes, you know? Yeah, I mean, most the, the, of these... it's that. Right, and he, like, for all that his movies are about sort of men and women, like, you know, it's like, ha-ha, really funny that Megan Fox is, like, a prostitute, you know? It's, um, like, abortion is never discussed. There's this sort of realness of the female experience that's not just about like immature dude broism that he just is a vernacular i feel like he just can't touch you, you know you really think so you 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 don't give judd apatow a lot of credit when it comes to examining women's emotions i mean i think i give him some um but like katherine keener's character in i mean look the the preferred female mode of communication in a judd apatow movie is to yell at someone Right? Like, mm -hmm. Catherine Keener yells at her daughter. She yells at Steve Carell's character in Knocked Up. Um, Catherine Heigl, like, spends a lot of time yelling at Ben or, you know, um, sort of sullen around her sister. Um, I haven't seen Funny People, so I can't speak to that. But again, this is a movie where, like, the women spend all this time yelling at each other or being really passive aggressive. And it's like, to mm -hmm. me, it's a very sort of male perspective on female experience, even when female experience is kind of foregrounded. Well, and also the in the Judd Apatow universe, whether it's on TV with uh, Freaks and Geeks or any yeah. of his um, movies, like the, the standard male reaction or mode is to kind of be a wimp. Yeah. It's to be a wimp, kind of nerdy and or... A misfit and not really having direction in life right. so in his universe fair, the men like, are wimpy and the women are shrill yeah or yeah shrill screamy whatever yeah. but so i i'm not sure it, i don't see it as a problem with women it's it's just like what judd apatow thinks the world is both male and female yeah I mean, it, and it maybe... sucks <laughs> i mean do you want to be that well, version of 40 you know, and I also, I, you know, I don't think, I, I feel like things that Pete and Debbie, like, don't have mm -hmm. figured out, that maybe if your cholesterol is 305, you should do something about it, or that, like... Yeah, one of know. Pete's big things in the movie is he keeps eating cupcakes, like, yeah. all the time. Yeah. Like, in the same way that Humphrey Bogart is always have, holding a cigarette, I think Pete's always holding a cupcake. Right, something and like it's that. like, most people, by, their t by the time they're 40, have figured that out, you know? I mm -hmm. just, like, it felt to me like this is, you know... This is 30 and our development is arrested. <laughs> I will say I thought that the kids in the movie were great. Like Maude Apatow and her sister were really wonderful. And I actually think the movie, the extent to which the movie is about a teenage girl who's like really frustrated by her sister who doesn't quite know how to like be a good person and interact with her yet and is trying to figure out boys and like her mother and everything else and dealing with the stress of parents who like kind of hate each other and are being very immature about it like that's a much more interesting movie i i do agree with you on that point i watching the kids throughout the whole thing like that could have been its own movie yeah just like kids what well, wait that that movie title's already taken it's a horribly dark movie but uh children i don't know um they just they had a certain love hate chemistry together that was kind of the beating heart of the movie yeah to me the relationship between the two sisters they how they would 
argue about whether or not the younger one could watch Lost with her. I thought was one of the better extended punchlines of the movie. And it yeah. just had to do with, like, watching Lost on an iPad. Right, exactly. It's like, they're all dead. <laughs> Jack and Kate and Sawyer. I also thought John Lithgow was very good. Like, he plays Debbie's estranged father. Um, and there's this scene where, you know, he's shown up to a party at Debbie and Pete's house, and it's going poorly, and he sort of runs out on them. And Debbie is upset at him, and he finally just snaps, like, you know... And says something like, you know, things go better when I am not involved in them. I don't know how. Right, like, that's what my son tells me. And it's it's one of the most sort of emotionally precise moments in the movie. I thought Lithgow mm-hmm. was just wonderful in it. I mean, he's so good at playing these sort of repressed, waspy types. Um, yeah, and it's... Like, there's a, I feel like there's a really good movie in um, This Is 40. There's, like, four different good movies. But it's, like, it's not really... The one about Pete and Debbie is the weakest one. Hmm. You know, I, I, I even someone who really liked it, I might agree with you on that, but only because I like the other components a little bit more. But the last thing I'll say about yeah. this is forty, um, is addressing your point about how this is not the movie you want to see if you're in a committed relationship <laughs> in your late twenties. Uh, that that for me is obviously different strokes for different folks because sure. what I said to you the night we saw the movie and you brought that point up was. I ask you, you've never been in a relationship where you are at the same time completely miserable but somehow completely happy simultaneously? And it didn't seem like you were quite understanding what I meant by that. Oh, I mean, I guess I do, but I think that's like teenage bullshit. Like, the idea that... The idea that sort of extremely high highs are supposed to be paired with extremely low lows is, I think, like a very sort of, you know like labile adolescent sense of relationships and it's something that i like have been in but i'm very Mm -hmm. glad to have moved beyond Hmm. you know i also think it's possible to like have the really high highs without having the really low lows that's maybe but i i think acute immaturity pervades people into their 20s 30s 40s and 50s like pretty universally which is what i don't know that's why i think the movie is more realistic than (laughs) I probably should. I'm not. I'm not sure. I gave give it points for that, but um, it spoke to me. Like I, I see it, and I think to myself, this, of course, is exaggerated, but it did distill like deeply unsatisfied American suburban family down to this like tragic comic essence for me. And I, I do give the, cre- the movie a lot of credit for that. I, in in that sense, I appreciate this is forty just as much as a family drama as i did a comedy and speaking of family dramas let us turn to quentin tarantino's django unchained which is fundamentally a family drama where uh jamie fox plays django um a slave who is uh freed by the machinations of a hilarious bounty hunter played by christoph waltz and one of my german bounty hunter yes a german abolitionist bounty hunter um uh and strikes a deal with him that allows the two of them to go after django's wife who is being held by Calvin Candy um, in a totally florid performance by Leonardo DiCaprio as a tree-panning, sister-loving southern nutball. As you can probably tell, there's a lot of killing in this movie. I mean, it that, is a Quentin Tarantino movie. Someday Quentin Tarantino movie it will make a movie that's about like fluffy bunnies being happy, and people will be so confused. It'll be based on a manga, and there'll be a lot of killing. 
<laughs> it's not. <laughs> but anyway, before we get started on Django, just briefly, what do you think of Quentin Tarantino? What do you do? You have an opinion on his I mean, filmography? He is often sort of over the limit for me in terms of cinematic violence. Like I, mm-hmm. you know, um. I have a somewhat low threshold on all of this stuff and I don't particularly enjoy watching gory things happen. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, as someone who mashes up genres, he's, you know, like him. I would love to see a panel that's like him, Edgar Wright, Stephen Chow, who did Kung Fu Hustle, which is a combination of martial arts and Western movie. And just listen to them talk about sort of a genre in conversation with itself mm-hmm. um, because he's so fascinating on that score. And, as someone who is not sort of oriented towards what Tarantino's shtick is, I really liked Django Unchained. I sort of wasn't certain about it when I walked out of the movie theater, and the more I think about it, the more I really liked it. Yeah, it it really is a fabulous mess. Yeah. And I, I actually do not mean mess that negatively. Some of my favorite movies are, are messes. Right. It's just that it's... Sort of operatic and emotionally florid and everything else. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a... Spaghetti Western, but set in the American South. Yes. In the pre-Civil War it's era. It's a Southern rather than a Western. Yeah, yeah. And it's, um, I don't know, in terms of the other slavery movie, the Oscar bait that came out recently, Lincoln. I, I got to say, I, <laughs> Django and Jane, miles above Lincoln in um, terms of my recommendations. I mean, I'm not sure I'd say. I think, you know, I actually think that... Um, Django Unchained and Lincoln are fairly similar movies, uh, which is not something that, you know, anyone would... I think that's not something that most people would notice at first glance, but they're fundamentally... Alyssa pitches. Yes. Um, We can hashtag that. Um, But it's sort of fundamentally a movie about... that meditates on sort of moderation versus radicalism and sort of the pleasures of revenge, whether they're enacted, you know, sort of by blood as they are in Django or, you know, by politics as they are foreshadowed to be in Lincoln with the rise of Thaddeus Stevens and sort of harsh reconstruction. Um, And, you know, I mean, my favorite scene in the movie is, you know, you've had this sort of tense adventure. Walt's bounty hunter character is, you know, in a study with um, DiCaprio's character, Calvin Candy, they've just sort of arranged for Walt's character to buy the freedom of Django's wife, played by Kerry Washington, who has even less to do in this movie than she does in Scandal. Um, and whether the movie will go violently or not depends on whether Walt's character, this doctor, can bring himself to shake Candy's hand. And it's, again, it's the same sort of minor compromise as the turning point mm-hmm. in Lincoln, and he cannot do it. You know, he just, his level of sort of disgust for this man is too high. I, and he says early on in the movie, like, how much I detest slavery. Right. Like, you know, it's, and it's... He's a bounty hunter. He's not soulless. Right. It's just, it's a beautifully acted scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, it's, you know, it's a scene that ends in violence, but is not itself violent, you know? And right. it's... Uh, I just thought really finely wrought. Um. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it, it helps play to Tarantino's, I wouldn't call it a hidden strength, but less publicized strength. So much of what makes his movies so, so great are not like the long, almost aimless spouts of dialogue, which I think are usually beautifully constructed, not yeah. the like visceral pangs you feel whenever you like stages a shootout, which I, yeah. or sword out, or whatever, yeah. like in Kill Bill, or, but... It's 
eating a cheeseburger slowly and menacingly in Pulp Fiction. It's like... It's the moments when something is about to happen. Right. And he, he loads them so carefully and yeah. so wonderfully, like he does with this handshake that you're talking about. And I don't want to spoil too much because it's no. a big moment in the movie. Um, and I don't know. I, I think it's almost coming to a point where the way he does this stuff, Tarantino might be somewhat underrated in the way he can craft this stuff because he's seen as such a pop auteur. Well, like, it, you and know, I mean, he's a he is this sort of master of violence who often makes movies that are about whether or not violence can be avoided, mm. right? I mean, the scene, the um, sort of kitchen fight scene in Kill Bill when the bride is trying to make sure she doesn't fight this former colleague of hers in front of the woman's daughter mm -hmm. um, and sort of says at the end of the scene after he, she's killed this girl's mother that, like, she will totally accept it when someday this little girl comes after her. You know, there are all of these turning points in his movies where violence could or could not occur. And, you know, there's something sort of almost elegiac about human nature that in Tarantino movies, the violence always occurs. Right. You know, it's a, you know, his movies, as much as they are themselves savage, are a commentary on our own savagery in a way that I find really interesting. Right. And it's uh, particularly refreshing for... to get that out of someone who openly admits how much he likes wallowing in, say, the pornography of violence yeah. in movies. Like, he's openly said, like, when talking about Stanley Kubrick yeah. and how Stanley Kubrick said about A Clockwork Orange, I'm not making a movie, um, like, for violence. I'm making a movie, like, about and against yeah. violence. Tarantino's response to that was, like, are you fucking kidding me? It's right. like your dick was hard during the entire first 15 minutes of A Clockwork Orange while you were filming that, and that all had to do with killing, raping, and pillaging. Well, and there's something honest about that, yeah, right? Yeah, which you I know? appreciate, yeah. absolutely. Like, uh, as a filmmaker, you're supp or an artist even, you're supposed to appreciate things that you don't appreciate in real life. And that said, I think it's entirely possible to make cinema or television about violence in which violence appears to be despicable and it is sickening and uncomfortable to watch, but... There is a difference between doing that and sort of, you know, making pornography. And if you're making pornography, you should admit you're making pornography. Right. So, uh, uh, violence erotica. Yeah. <laughs> and he, uh, and the guys who he uses as his models for how to choreograph and shoot mm. and edit and stage uh, violent sequences, particularly in this movie where there is like this one particularly grand, bloody. Sam Peckinpah-inspired yeah. spaghetti western melee, which yeah. I thought was one of the scenes of the year. Um, he, he gets a lot of inspiration from guys like John Woo. And yeah. they, uh, like great Chinese uh, Hong Kong bullet opera, bullet ballet director, who openly states frequently that some of his, that his top inspirations for uh, staging action sequences with Chow Yun-Fat were like... Fred Astaire, yeah. like Broadway musicals. Right, violence is dance. Yeah, exactly. And it, as refreshing as it, as it is to hear directors like Tarantino say, yes, we like the violence in our movies because it's violence in movies and it's not violence in real life, it's just as refreshing for them to openly get the beauty of the aesthetic. Yeah. Because it's a movie. I mean, it's... Right. Well, and the aesthetics of Django Unchained are quite interesting. I think one thing I mentioned to you watching out of the, walking out of the screening... Um, was that sort of the way that sp like slaveholding plantations are portrayed 
in the movie is really interesting and I think kind of problematic because the plantations themselves are physically beautiful. Like all of the slaves that we see are clean and well-dressed. Um, when we see, we see scars on slaves backs several times, um, but they're always healed. And with the exception of, you know, a scene of violence where a man is attacked by dogs and a very brutal fight between two black men, um, slavery actually looks kind of pretty for a lot of the movie. Like, and the way that sort of Kerry Washington's body is used in the movie is fascinating. Like, you know, we see her whipped, but we see her from the front. Like, you don't see the, the lash actually biting into her flesh. She's mm -hmm. in this sort of, you know, beatific agony when she is branded after running away on the cheek. You see sort of blue water and her brown skin and the sort of ember of the brand approaching, and you see her screaming. But it's, I mean, it's like shot through an Instagram filter or something. It's like the colors are very intense, but you don't actually see her maimed right. flesh. Um, when she's pulled out of like a hot box, her skin actually looks like amazing and dewy. And her, you know, her body looks sort of remarkable. Yeah, like she was just pulled out of a tanning bed in a salon Exactly. Or and there's this contrast between like her screaming and agony in all of these scenes and the like sort of physical lusciousness of her body. Mm -hmm. Um and I, I, I don't quite know what to make of it, right? Like, you know, I don't really think, I don't think T Tarantino is sophisticated enough to be like, listen to what she says of the experience as opposed to what you see of the experience, uh, which I think if he was like an explicitly feminist filmmaker or something might have been the case. But uh, that sort of like, the sort of gorgeousness of slavery is I think a real weird decision at the center of the movie. Right. And it's, I think part of that comes from, and I'm not sure if I see what I'm about to mention as a problem. I just see it as a, just a simple fact that Tarantino is trying to have it both ways in terms of getting the audience giddy over, like, carnage that is derived from a genre where carnage is supposed to be fun. Yeah. Like, like, the, like classic westerns and sure. spaghetti westerns, but also addressing issues like torture and maiming and just human bondage during yeah. the era of American slavery. And it's like you don't – Tarantino's taken in, like, all of his movies a good deal of influence from, like, exploitation films or yeah. black exploitation yeah. films. And you certainly see a lot of that in this movie with yeah. Jamie Foxx's character. And uh, – but you don't get the sense that he's doing anything – he's trying to do anything malicious. He right. he, he wants – to draw that giddiness out of it, but not do it whilst minimizing like how gruesome slavery was. Yeah, I mean, in America, but and I, that's incredibly hard to do. I'm not. I'm saying, not sure he pulls it off. Right. Um, the other thing that's very interesting about the movie, to me at least, is the way like black complicity in slaveholding society is a major theme of the movie. Um, you know, Fox's um, character is sort of the most sort of expeditious in pursuit of his own freedom. Um, you know, at one of the first plantations they visit after he kills uh, two overseers who, you know, caught and helped brand him and his wife, you know, the plantation owner comes out and he's flanked by all of these sort of trusted black people who are on his side and, you know, have weapons and are protecting yeah. his family. And in, in the end, the sort of big bad in the movie turns out to be not, you know... Um, Calvin Candy, this plantation owner, but like Stephen, his sort of black family retainer, um, who is deeply, deeply invested in sort of the preservation of slavery as a means of maintaining his own position in yeah. the family. Yeah, like 
Samuel L. Jackson in that role really is like a very dark version of the happy slave. Right. Like that. I mean, he literally is, if it's a video game and like you're sort of killing your way to the big boss, he is like, he is the boss fight at the end of the movie mm-hmm. um, in a way that's really interesting. I'm like, and I think it's even more interesting because none of it is physical. I'm not sure no. we see him holding a weapon in the entire movie. And no, he, but he, he, he has a cane. Right. But he's, he's this extraordinarily spiritually malevolent character. Yeah. Um, and it's an excellent performance by Jackson. Like, I think he does mm-hmm. excellent work. But it'll, the idea that, It'll like, be interesting to see and hear how people respond to it. I have right. a feeling people are going to get at least a little angry, maybe. Right. I mean, I think the idea that, you know, there's an extent to which the movie has this idea that, like, sort of black complicity in black subordination is sort of almost more deeply rooted and harder harder to vanquish than white racism. That, again, is not an idea I'm, necessi- I'm willing to get on board with, right? Because I think right. white racism is pretty virulent. Mm-hmm. Um but it's a it's a very sort of uncomfortable idea. It it is something out of history, but at the same time, as as someone who loves Tarantino, I'm not sure I want a history lesson sure. from him. And that again, that's something where I don't really think it's a problem this in this movie, but it could definitely seem that way right. to some people. Yeah, because I mean, I I don't think he is, and I don't think a but. But including Quentin Tarantino would say he's trying to teach anybody history yeah. in this movie. But he, it's a, I mean, it's a weird, interesting situation. Um, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating movie. Um, and this is sort of, you know, this is why I think both of us agree that it's a bit of a mess. But it's there's so much happening in the text, right? And mm-hmm. I mean, I'll take a filmmaker who is excessive and self indulgent but has a million ideas and is really excited about all of them over someone who is sort of tight and disciplined and has no ideas whatsoever any day. No, absolutely. And um, I would say that the movie is worth the price of admission if only for like the, what was it, like seven-minute-long battle, sh- battle yeah. in a mansion where it's Jamie Foxx playing, you know, the superhero with yeah. a couple of guns. And it's... Staged with like extra large squibs or something, filled with like orangish, gooey right. paint or something. Yeah, the, the sort of it, gouts of blood in the movie are impressive. Yeah, it's again. I mentioned the Sam Peckinpah influence yeah. earlier. Like Sam Peckinpah, he did the Wild Bunch, which is fantastic. Yeah. At the end, it's like this orgiastic, like um, take as many people down with you as you can with the Wild Bunch against their enemies, and it's definitely drawing influence from that, except with like more gallons <laughs> yeah. like the only difference here is that things that are exploding blood off the actors chests and other parts of their bodies are loaded with more gunk or whatever the yeah. hell it is I, I would also say with, it's interesting because there is that but with the exception of the two scenes that i mentioned it's less violent than some tarantino movies like mm-hmm. and the violence is filmed as a sort of remove um so i actually found it less upsetting to watch than kill bill really yeah which kill bill one or First two one. Mm-hmm. you and mean I have issues with eyes and, like, eye damage and stuff, so. Ah, yeah. Ooh. So, well, there there is a part in Django Unchained where there is quite a bit of eye damage. Did yes, I was not, I was sort of. Not a fan of. <laughs> well, yes. I I have also trained myself to just look away from stuff where I know mm. that terrible, terrible things are coming. So, I, that's why I said with the exception of those two scenes. So. Oh, I gotcha. Gotcha. Well, um. Family fun for everybody over the holiday. Go see Django Unchained. It does come out on Christmas. It's, it's a true. horror R rating. 
But if you have kids who are old enough, see with the whole family. If your kids are like 18, yeah, maybe even 16, whatever, I go mean, see it. Yeah, I would. It's it's a hard R, and like I actually mean that. So, um, but yeah, it's a you know it's a fun holiday season, folks. I uh, hope you're enjoying everything, and thank you as always for joining us throughout 2012. It's been a wonderful year with you. Yeah. Talk to you guys in 2013.